0: Welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty, an industry podcast for loyalty marketing professionals. I'm your host, Paula Thomas. And if you work in loyalty marketing, join me every week to learn the latest ideas from loyalty specialists around the world. Welcome to episode 40 of Let's Talk Loyalty, and today's episode is actually with a guest from a very different perspective and a very different world that we normally have on the show. And I am delighted actually to be inviting and discussing all about loyalty marketing with Professor Peter Fader, who's actually the professor of marketing at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Now, many of you may know it by reputation, and that business school was actually the world's first collegiate business school established way back in 1881. So, incredible credentials. And Professor Fader has actually been their professor of marketing for 33 years. So, without further ado, let me first of all welcome Professor Peter Fader to Let's Talk Loyalty.
1: Thanks, Paul. It's great to talk to you.
0: (laughs) Great stuff. Um, I'm a huge fan of the whole world of academia. Um, I was a little late to um, my own academic career, I will confess, Um, but certainly Wharton has an extraordinary reputation. So, super happy to be talking to you today.
1: And I'm super lucky to be part of that
0: institution. (laughs) You Uh, sure are. You sure are. Yeah. Now we'll obviously talk about all of the various things that you're working on. Um, But before we even get into the academic side of things, I also wanted to let listeners know that you have a very strong business background. Um, So I know you are currently running your second company and we'll be talking about your um, successes in business and you're also a successful author. So um, some books about loyalty and I know a new one coming up as well. So an incredibly busy man. So um, loads to talk about and as always um, I will call you Pete um, as we talked about so delighted to uh, to ask you first and foremost what is your favorite loyalty statistic? Uh,
1: Well the the numbers vary depending on which source you read but uh, the astounding number of different loyalty programs that people belong to uh, and and a statistic I recall seeing uh, uh, recently Again, not necessarily authoritatively, mm. is that sixty uh, percent of people belong to uh, five or more loyalty programs. And again, the the numbers could be fuzzy, but the the fact that, that people, uh, to the extent that loyalty programs reflect loyalty, mm-hmm. uh, kind of spread their loyalty out um, so broadly, uh, and on the surface seem so committed to make to to basically belong to something. Uh, on one hand is just really, really encouraging. On mm-hmm. the other hand is, is kind of scary and, and misleading. Uh, and I hope they'll have a chance to unravel a lot of that.
0: Absolutely. So there, there's lots of different things I'd like to explore with you. Um, but the first one is actually just a very general question. I see that you uh, originally studied mathematics in MIT. Um, and I'm sure that that has led into um, a lot of the work that you did, for example, with your first company. But why did you, first of all, um, find marketing so compelling? And how have you ended up in, in loyalty marketing?
1: You know, I didn't. <laughs> and- <laughs> Okay. Uh, When I was a math major at MIT, uh, I took this one course on marketing, a course on marketing models. I was more interested in the models than the marketing Mm. and building models of, you know, customers doing this and that. At the end of the semester, the professor came up to me and said, you must get a Ph.D. in marketing. Wow. And I said, you must get your head checked. I'm not (laughs) going into marketing. I'm a math guy. You know, it's the total polar opposite. Yeah. And this professor, her name is Lee McAllister. She's a professor at the University of Texas, Austin. Okay. Uh, I consider her now to be my fairy godmother. Wow. Uh, because she painted a picture. Keep in mind, this was 1983, which is about 500 years ago, effectively. <laughs> yeah. And she painted this picture of what the world of marketing would become with the ability to tag and track individuals and to predict who's going to do what next and then to build decisions and tactics and strategies directly on that customer level data. She painted this picture of what what the world would would become. And she was 100% right uh, about the kinds of capabilities that we have today. Mm. Uh, I was intrigued. I was persuaded. uh, But it really was not something I kind of woke up one morning and said, I want to do this. Uh, And so I kind of thank a mentor like that who pushed me into it. Uh, And and continues to to guide me along the way to make sure that my work is, is relevant and compelling.
0: Wow. Well, I mean, if there's anything any of us could aspire to, it's to be relevant and co- compelling, Pete. So, really excited to hear all about that. And obviously, because the audience listening to this show um, are predominantly loyalty directors, loyalty executives, um, we certainly don't need to be convinced about the power of you know the right customers, which I know is a really core message to what you're keen to communicate. So, I'd love to just explore um, that subject initially, but then get into the more recent work that you've done. I know there's a fabulous article in the Harvard Business Review. Um, so really want to talk about that. But uh, I'd love to just explore customer centricity and what was the um, the problem that you were seeing um, that I suppose inspired you to develop all of the models and I suppose to go into business to to prove those models?
1: That's great. A p- perfect setup, Paul. Thank you. Uh, so, so basically, for my 33 years as a professor, as I said, I've just been predicting things. So, you know, <laughs> how many customers will this company acquire? Yeah. Uh, how long will they stay until they completely leave and go someplace else? Uh, over that horizon, how many purchases will they make and how much will they spend when they do? And of course, what actions can we as a firm take to improve our performance along each of those and other dimensions? So, I've just been predicting things. That's what I like to do. Um, and, I've, and, the, and our ability to do so is actually really strong. A lot of companies don't realize just how predictable customer behavior is yeah. and how regular a lot of these patterns appear to be across seemingly unrelated businesses. So a lot of the distinctions that we focus on, B2B B versus B2C or uh, domestic versus international or big complex, complex products and services versus simple, low involvement, mundane ones. Mm-hmm. A lot of those surface level characteristics do not matter. Then when we just look at the data and say, what is the, the data? What are the models telling us about how long this or that? Um, it, it's amazing how all these models work. And so for years, I've been going to companies and saying, listen, There's a lot of really valuable insight here, stuff you want to know, stuff that's going to both drive your decisions and help you evaluate them more effectively. And for most of my career, companies have completely ignored me. They've (laughs) they've dismissed me as an academic. They've said, oh, well, my business is different. Um, They they, they would come up with a a litany of reasons to basically shoot the messenger. (laughs) And so around 10 years ago, so frustrated by the inability uh, to to get these ideas across, maybe it's a failing of myself, I don't know, um, I I went down two parallel paths. uh, And you have referred to both of them. One is I started writing these books to stop glorifying the models per se and more to focus on what it all means, to focus on the managerial motivations to do this yeah. The consequences of not doing so, uh, the, the kinds of steps associated with it. And, of course, lots of examples of companies that are doing this well mm. and some not so well. So there's okay. the books to try to spread the gospel and motivate people and get them to say, huh, never thought about it that way. And that's great. But a lot of companies would still they, they'd be motivated, but still unable to move ahead. I mean, there is some technical sophistication involved here. Mm-hmm. And despite my efforts to make these models as, as accessible as possible, here are some spreadsheets and some videos and some some R code and some technical <laughs> notes. Um, at some point, I realized I had to kind of take matters into my own hands. Okay. And that's why I co-founded my first startup, Zodiac,
0: okay. that basically
1: uh, allowed companies to leverage all of these models at full commercial scale in yeah. near real time, and to be able to do so in a way that would integrate with their transaction systems, as well as the uh, you know, email marketing and, and, and Facebook and so on, to be able to take data, run the models, and then take actions uh, seamlessly and very quickly.
0: Phenomenal. Wow. And I know you had a very successful exit, and you mentioned that you sold the company in 2018, was it?
1: It, that is true. Yeah, I had no, no not only no uh, intention to to sell the company, but I, it was the furthest thing from from my radar. Wow! This was my podium. This was my ability to spread the gospel, and it was working very, very well. Yeah, working with lots of different companies, retailers, and. Pharmaceuticals and travel and hospitality, and uh, uh, telcos and gaming, and lots of different companies using these models to better understand their customers, take action on them. Uh, I'm never going to let this go. Yeah. But then, one of our clients, a company called Nike, that I'm sure, of course, you <laughs> know about, um, yeah. they've we said, we want it and we want it all. Brilliant. So indeed, March of 2018, Nike bought the company to kind of take a lot of these insights and capabilities and bring mm-hmm. them in-house. Mm-hmm. They're doing amazing things with it. Uh, and so on one hand, I, I kind of had to let my baby go. Yeah. But on the other hand, it was just an amazing validation. Yes. When, when a company like Nike steps up, a company that's doing it in a position of power, not yes. out of desperation, yes. and we're doing well, we could be doing better. Yeah. Um, a lot of other companies started to say, well, wait a minute, maybe we should be doing this stuff after all. And mm. so wow. you know, ironically, it was selling the company that was a, a great thing to uh, put a lot of kind of wind behind the sails to get others on board.
0: Wow. Well, and it's it's impressive to hear as well, I guess, Pete, that, um, that you didn't create the company to sell because uh, I saw another statistic actually in your um, LinkedIn profile, which was, I thought, phenomenal in that in 2017, you were um, included by Advertising Age as one of their inaugural 25 marketing technology trailblazers. So um, you've obviously got uh, the mindset for technology. And I know you were the only academic on the list. So I have a very. Um, you know, great relationship with my own uh, MBA um, professor. So I just think it's phenomenal that you've managed to cross all of these worlds um, and, and to do yeah. it so successfully.
1: Thank you, Paul. And actually, that that acknowledgement from Ed H, uh, was very meaningful. Yeah. Uh, not to get the recognition, but as you said, to be the only academic on the list. Usually, you don't put academics on <laughs> lists like that. Yeah. You know, that, that crunch their numbers, come up with their theories, spin their ivory tower yarns. Yes. Uh, and of course, I'm still doing a lot of that. I'm still, you know, my, my day job <laughs> is a professor, I'm still writing papers and teaching and doing all the academic stuff. None of that changes. Yeah. Um, but the idea that, that you know, let's call it the real world yeah. has basically found value mm. in some of the academic work. Uh, very few professors uh, have that luxury uh, to, to find success in academia, but also yeah. attention. Uh, among leading edge practitioners and again a lot of it is just right Mm. place right time good luck yeah Uh, but a lot of it i think i will take credit for is that companies are realizing that the way they used to do marketing the way they used to look at their customers the way that the marketing organization fit in with the rest of the enterprise just isn't working well it was Mm. fine in the 1950s but but here we are 70 years later Um, We should be doing things differently. Uh, And I'm just pleased that a lot of them are are looking to me and my work uh, for some of those sources of of, of techniques and, and inspiration.
0: Phenomenal, And I guess one of the main reasons that I actually wanted you to come on to the show, Pete, was really to talk about, you know, we've had, as you said, these models for many years. We've had our Pareto principles. We've had actually customer lifetime value. And I think I said at the start that certainly loyalty executives don't need to be convinced about focusing on the right customers. But what I really liked, what I heard you talking about actually on um, on another podcast was really about um, how customers Are becoming increasingly a strategic asset that um, potential investors in a company are looking to understand the patterns of their behavior in terms of driving the customer. Sorry, in terms of driving the company valuation. So, I'd love you to explain the latest ideas around customer-based corporate valuation.
1: Absolutely. Thank you again. You're just you couldn't set it up any more perfectly. I come at it from from, from two different ways. Uh, one I've just mentioned, which is the idea that it's just so frustrating that marketing is is often in this isolated silo, mm-hmm. very hard for them to get uh, attention, traction, resources with other c level executives. You know all these stories about how CMOs have such short tenure. Uh, and so 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 part of it is coming out from the from the marketing side. Let's find a way to really get the the, the credibility. the the, the visibility, the the true partnerships that we all yearn for. So, I mean, all marketers want to make that happen. So, But now coming at it from the other side, finance, uh, it's kind of nice that we in marketing have something to offer them. Uh, I mean, very specifically, go back to the kinds of models that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. We can predict how many customers we're going to acquire and how long they're going to stay and what they're going to do and how much money we're going to make off of them Mm -hmm. and add all that up. Well, that's the revenue of the company. Yeah. And so by by looking at revenue in this kind of underlying way, decomposing it into these different pieces and then building it up Mm -hmm. to to not only project what the revenue will be, but to diagnose why it will be going up or why it will be leveling off. You know, is it because we're not acquiring enough customers or not staying long enough with us? That marketers and marketing models have a lot to say to the CFO about cash flow. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then it's just a very short step from there to say, well, why stop with just the cash flow or revenue projections? Let's go all the way to corporate valuation. Mm -hmm. So we're really focusing these days on customer-based corporate valuation, CBCV, Mm -hmm. uh, and doing it again to achieve both goals, to make the marketer a true thought partner with the CFO, Mm -hmm. to help the CFO and outside investors do their job more effectively Mm -hmm. by being cognizant of marketing
0: fantastic. And I will make sure, uh, Pete, in the show notes that we linked to the article that was published, I know, in the Harvard Business Review and um, that you co-authored um, literally just the January-February edition. Um, but I'd love if you just um, talk to listeners about just the opening story about Revolve as a good example of that particular model. And I suppose the company was undervalued particularly through not understanding the loyalty of their customers. So maybe just explain that to listeners, because I think that's a really, good example.
1: Sure thing. So uh, let me just back up a a step to to put it all in context. So after selling Zodiac, uh, one of my Zodiac partners, actually my former PhD student, Dan McCarthy, Mm -hmm. he and I co-founded a new company, Theta Equity Partners. That's Theta like the Greek letter, not like my name.
0: Okay.
1: (laughs) Uh, Theta (laughs) Equity Partners. And the the, the whole point is indeed to revolutionize finance through customer-based corporate valuation. Okay. Either work directly with a company. Uh, there, there might be, a, 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 well, there are a lot of companies out there that feel that they're undervalued. They feel that they have these customer assets and, and either their their owners or their other stakeholders feel that, that aren't putting enough attention on the, these valuable, sticky, loyal customers. And they'll come to us to say, show us that value. You know, maybe we can't quite put it on the balance sheet in some conventional accounting way, but we can at least demonstrate how much customer asset value there is and how what impact it's going to have mm-hmm. on future cash flow mm-hmm. so whether we're working with a company to help them uh, see and and leverage all the customer value they have mm. or we're on the outside in uh, so let's say an investor comes to us and says listen we, we can't get you all that data but you know from the, the limited amount of data that the company reveals in the public setting can you help us understand? So Revolve Clothing out of Los Angeles is, is a really nice example, but by no means unique. So, uh, and I want to correct one word that you said a minute ago, Paul. It's not so much that, that Revolve itself didn't recognize the value. I, I think they're actually very, very smart over there. They, they mm-hmm. understand all the stuff that I'm talking about and doing. They've hired many of my students. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the rest of the world <laughs> that just looks at as some clothing yes. company. A lot of influencers running around and, and basically yeah. doesn't give them credit for the well let's say the loyalty the stickiness yeah. uh, of their customer base. When Revolve went public, when they announced their IPO uh, a couple of years ago in their in the in their uh, uh, S one filing, all companies have to put out there. Mm-hmm. They were very smart and they put some some very rich data out there mm-hmm. uh, that basically was just enough information for Dan and myself and and our team at Thade Equity to Mm -hmm. basically kind of reverse engineer that that limited but rich data uh, in order to basically say, well, here's what those lifetime values look like. Here's how it varies across the customers. Here's Mm -hmm. how we think it will play out over time. And here's how it goes all the way to to an overall corporate valuation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sure enough, we we found that the company was undervalued. uh, and, 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 And to fast forward to today, When the whole COVID thing hit, Mm. uh, so many companies took a big drop in their stock price, understandable reasons, uh, 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 revolving way too far down. It just made no sense how far their stock price went down in light of the stickiness of their customer base. Mm. Uh, And so there we are, you know, tweeting and posting again saying, wait a minute, let's not overreact here. You know, if a company has you know really loyal customers, sure, maybe revenues will will fall for some period of time, but the long run continues to be bright. Mm. So again, I don't want to single them out, but it's it's uh, although they deserve it, yeah. Um, uh, but it's it's that kind of thinking yeah. that every company should be doing, and every investor should be demanding. Yes, uh, and that leads directly to. That, that series of HBR articles, one by Dan McCarthy and myself, mm-hmm. one by Rob Markey, guy from Bain Consulting. The guy who set up their, their whole consumer practice, and many of your listeners might not recognize his name, yeah. but they'll certainly recognize one of his big contributions, Net Promoter Score. He's the NPS yes. guy. <laughs> uh, for, for someone like him yeah. to be embracing and promoting, Yes. Uh, a lot of these, these, uh, these customer metrics that I tend to focus on, uh, that, that, that means a lot and hopefully will have a lot of impact.
0: Absolutely. And again, that's exactly why I wanted you on the show, Pete, because, you know, for listeners, we're, we're all familiar with Net, Net Promoter Score and we, we have those metrics, but we want to be updated with the latest thinking and you guys are the ones creating it. Um, and I particularly loved in that HBO article, actually, um, just a particular um, section which you entitled Trending Towards Transparency. And not just in clothing retail, as you identified there, but also it seems that even the tech companies are recognizing the importance or, I guess, the opportunity to voluntarily be more transparent. So, is this something that you think companies are increasingly confident doing? Or I think there's a lot of companies quite nervous about doing that.
1: Absolutely. They're quite nervous about it. Uh, In fact, step one is just to get companies to recognize that these metrics are valuable for their own internal purposes. That if we can sort apart customer acquisition from retention, from development, and, and and understand how we get the best customers and how to nurture them and, and find more like them, um, we can do better. So, 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 so job one is just to get companies to, to do it internally and to make it more than just a marketing thing and tie it in across the organization. But getting them to go from an internal view to sharing some of these metrics, mm. that's a giant, giant step. <laughs> yeah, uh, Most companies are, are, are nervous about it. Um, why disclose information if it's not required? Mm. Uh, you know, th- there's, there's always the threat of, of, sh- of shareholder lawsuits. Mm. Uh, there's this question about which metrics would we disclose? What would we say about them? Uh, so there's actually, understandably, a tremendous amount of reluctance on the part of companies to do this. So, so my job with Dan and with Rob Markey at, at Bain mm. is, is to kind of get them to overcome that, and do so in two ways. Number one, if you're really competent with what you're doing, if, if you if you you know that it's working well, and you're proud of it, hey, you know, look at these metrics. It, mm. It's a way to overcome the issues that I mentioned before about investors and other stakeholders not fully understanding. Um, you know why, why are you starting up that that CRM system or that loyalty program so number one it's a way to get uh, just just broader confidence and buy-in but the other branch is to say you know what let's not count on the companies at all because they will be reluctant for good reasons let's try to get accounting standards boards uh, and and other uh, either regulatory agencies or just investors themselves to pound on the door and say, "Listen, we know you're reluctant about this, but you just have to. Okay, mm-hmm. if if you want our money, if you want our approval, you must reveal these metrics." Wow. So we're trying to come at it with you know carrots and sticks, uh, <laughs> and and I and I think you you really do need both, and I, and I understand. That it's gonna be a long time before these ideas and these practices become commonplace. Yeah. But I'm actually very confident. Like, give me, give me a generation. You know, when, when our <laughs> kids are are running the world, um these kinds of disclosures will, will be commonplace. And if companies yeah. don't disclose them, there'll be a lot of questions asked about what they're hiding.
0: For sure. And I I really hope it doesn't take a generation, Pete, because, you know, I I did see in some of your work that you've taken it to the Financial Accounting Standards Board. And to me, that's exactly, you know, as somebody who has always been proud of what we've achieved and everything I've, you know, ever worked on, I'm certainly in the spirit of transparency. And I think, you know, the more that um, companies do, you know, occasionally uh, go the wrong direction in terms of their own ethics and accounting, the more it's important for us to be proactive about these things. So, so I love that you're pushing for that and I certainly hope it doesn't take a generation.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I am I, I I'm Getting yeah. conservative in yeah. saying that. Yeah. Every single day, uh, we're seeing more and more companies either asking the right questions, so which mm. metrics should we look at and how mm. should we look at them and what conclusions can we draw from them? Again, mm. that's, that's always going to be step one. More and more companies are offering some of these kinds of disclosures on a more regular basis. Again, mm-hmm. they're, they're in the minority and there's still questions about them and there's still shareholder lawsuits. Yeah. Um, but but bit by bit, we're moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And I hope that it will be uh, uh, not limited to any one geography. I hope mm-hmm. that it won't be limited to any one sector. Some mm-hmm. sectors are a little bit more open than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, but we're, we're working on it. And I'm hoping that even, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Podcasts like this will will Mm -hmm. help move the conversation ahead.
0: For sure, for sure, and I love the way you suggested it, Pete. In that, um, particularly again for us as marketing executives and for the the CMOs of the world to take these ideas to the CFOs. Um, I mean, what would you recommend we start with? You know, if you do have um, siloed organizations, as I know you've identified, is, is is often what happens with the best will in the world. We're very busy, but again, busy in our own department. So, what would you advise to to senior marketeers to take to their finance? finance colleagues to help them with these kind of languages and to prepare for those future expectations?
1: You know, I have found one of the, the biggest surprises that I've had just in these last couple of years has been how well this idea of CBCD, customer-based corporate valuation, mm. um, uh, how seriously finance people are are, are willing to take it and think about it and talk about it, whether it's the CFO, whether it's the yeah. VP of investor relations, or even if it's someone, let's say a level or two down in the organization, someone who's interacting with marketing, mm-hmm. someone who might even understand that marketing brings something to the table, but, but looking for a, a, a tool that they can move up the ladder mm-hmm. to say, hey, wait a minute, boss, you ought to pay attention to this. Mm. So, so CBCB by itself to say, hey, look, from a marketing perspective, a bottom-up perspective, here's what the overall organization's worth, or here's what the, this business unit is worth, or this ge- geography, or this segment of customers. Mm. So to, to start using it, not necessarily for the, the whole company, but for, for different well-defined parts of it,
0: mm. and
1: then to look at it across those units and mm-hmm. over time, mm-hmm. to say, where are we creating value, where are we losing it? Why, uh, and then work backwards, I don't want to say backwards, but work in one direction to say, hey, marketers, you know, reallocate your resources, yeah. but work in the other direction to say, hey, external stakeholders and shareholders, um, uh, look at all this value over here that you might never have, uh, have appreciated before. Sure. Uh, it, it achieves both of those goals using the very same metrics, models, and data. So it's not like you have to kind of change your tune for, mm-hmm. for one or another.
0: Yeah. And, and I know we won't get into the full model or do justice to it here, Pete. But just give us a sense of the um, the inputs that go into that customer-based corporate valuation.
1: Again, one of the big surprises that, that we've had. I got to give my my partner in crime, Dan McCarthy, a ton of the credit for this. Because mm-hmm. for most of my career, I had the luxury of, of getting data from companies, so I could see the full transaction logs. Mm-hmm. And so it was, you know, I don't want to say easy, but but immediately straightforward to come up with the kinds of projections that I've mentioned now numerous times. I won't repeat them again. Um, and one of the things I always wondered about is how little data do we need? Uh, and so I have lots and lots of academic papers where we talk about kind of re- reduced data sets, recognizing that you're not going to put your transaction logs out there, mm. recognizing the realities of things like GDPR to say that even if you wanted to, mm. it's impossible. Um, <laughs> So, so how little data do we need that would be, you know, privacy protected, um, but, but still very informative? Yeah. And so part of Dan McCarthy's dissertation was focusing on exactly this piece. On what set of metrics uh, must we have in order to do the kind of reverse engineering uh, in order to basically uncover what the transaction logs look like without ever having access to them? And like I said, there were certain companies like Revolve Clothing and others. who just happened, whether through smarts or luck, just Mm -hmm. put the right metrics out there. Uh, And so we found that that a fairly small set of metrics that's easy to understand, that's Mm -hmm. fairly common and universal across all kinds of companies, Mm -hmm. uh, and just lend themselves to do the mathy stuff Mm -hmm. uh, in order to then uh, get all kinds of insights that are not lurking in the metrics themselves, uh, to get really specific about it, uh, in, in, again, in, in part of Dan's dissertation work, mm. he found that the two metrics, if you want to pin me down and say, which ones did we have? <laughs> uh, one of them would be the number of active users. So how many people have done something with us, You know, made a purchase, posted mm-hmm. something, whatever mm-hmm. the business model might be. Mm-hmm. Um, in a given period of time, say a, a quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other would be uh, just the, the, the total amount of usage or the average amount of usage. So mm-hmm. how many people have done it mm-hmm. and made a purchase? Mm-hmm. And among those who have, how many purchases have they made? Mm-hmm. And if you give me those two metrics over a period of time, um, I can do an amazingly accurate job of, of uncovering basically the full Set of lifetime values. Uh, Mm. There's other metrics we want as well, but but those are at the heart of it. Yeah. Uh, And it's it's, uh, basically that's what I'm pushing is is for companies to look at these things, Mm -hmm. companies to share these things and Mm -hmm. for investors and others to demand them.
0: Mm, fantastic. And I know then you add in the uh, the customer acquisition as well to get the overall valuation. So to, to get beyond the lifetime value to, to the overall valuation. Um, so again, I'll make sure we link through to um, where all of that is detailed, again, in the Harvard Business Review article. And the other one I really liked as well, Pete, actually on your own website, the, the Theta Equity Partners website, you have a link over to the Bain uh, model, which is an interactive look at how to calculate it um, using Lyft as a company, as an example. So um, as you said, Bain um, invented a lot of the KPIs that a lot of us are, are measuring. So um, there's plenty of models there that you've provided for people to, to get some experience with.
1: Yeah, and, and again, thanks for the, the shout out. There's actually a lot of really good content on the Theta website yeah. for folks who normally want to see examples of Cb CV in action. But I want to think carefully about how it links back to marketing, because again, ultimately, I'm a marketing professor, and always will be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we can use C B C V to get the attention of the finance folks and the external stakeholders, yeah. But then uh, use that just to kind of get buy-in and get some, you know, smarts about our own marketing initiatives. That's nirvana. That's the holy grail. <laughs> uh, that, you know, a lot of the valuation stuff is, is is a means towards an end for uh, for myself, although. It's an yeah. end unto itself or for a lot of other people.
0: Fantastic, great. And I'm coming to the end of it now, Pete, but um, I did want to reference, I thought there was a good story, which I think uh, you mentioned that D- Dan had actually um, done a lot of research actually in terms of how Peloton had uh, projected some future cash flows, but uh, hadn't quite done it with the same level of, let's say accuracy that might be um, expected for, for a, a publicly listed company. So can you tell us that story just even in brief?
1: Yeah, well, let me first tell it to you in, in, in general, which is uh, this idea of lifetime value. Uh, all the cool kids are doing it now. It's become kind of trendy. It's become kind of faddish. And so yeah. a lot of people are talking about it. But there's not a lot of clarity on exactly what it is and how you define it and, how, and, and so on. So there's a, a bunch of companies out there. And then you mentioned Peloton, but they are, are far from the only um, that will come up with this, some kind of of a profitability metric, and then they'll just slap the CLV or the LTV label on it. Mm-hmm. In some cases, they're either um, only looking at historical profitability, they're mm-hmm. just saying how much money have these customers paid in their lifetime to date, mm-hmm. as opposed to projecting far out to say mm-hmm. well, how much longer will they continue to purchase. those. is important to make it a forward-looking metric. Yeah. In other cases... Uh, folks will fail to take into account the time value of money. They won't use an appropriate discount rate to say mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. know, dollars that we that we get today are more valuable to us than dollars that we get tomorrow. Yeah. That, that's part of the, the, the Peloton issue over there. Uh, and then uh, even if they are forward-looking and even if they are recognizing the time value of money, the specific way that they go about projecting how long will you stay with us and what will you do over that horizon. Sometimes they'll use heroic or, dare I say, flawed Um, simple rules of thumb to do that, Mm -hmm. uh, rather than doing it in kind of a a rigorous way with a high degree of validity. So Mm -hmm. on one hand, I'm the world's biggest cheerleader for some of these ideas of lifetime value. But on the other hand, I'm also a very strong critic. And when I see people using those words, Mm -hmm. but Using them incorrectly, yeah. I got to kind of come on in and slap their wrist and say, <laughs> if, if you're not going to do it right, then don't talk about it at all. Yeah. And uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's tough, but, it, but it's important if we want to have credibility yes. uh, you know, for, for a long time ahead.
0: You're right, and absolutely. And you know, I clearly haven't done nearly as much of of analysis or study of the investment community and how they value companies as you have, but I can see the principles. And again, we're all marketeers and we all want to paint a very positive picture, but you're right, there has to be consistency and um, credibility around the metrics. And you used a particular term as well, actually, Pete, which I really liked, which was revenue durability. And I think, again, as loyalty practitioners, uh, we would always say that that's exactly what we're we're focused on you know what are the profitable behaviors that we're focused on and who are we focused on doing them with so um definitely i think we're we're all in alignment with your thinking
1: yeah and that's yeah this is a great example Paula, that that we're we're trying to find the language that's less marketing ish and more finance ish yeah, okay, yeah revenue durability i'm so glad that you noticed that Uh, Words that kind of mean something to finance people, um, but highlight what we as marketers do. Uh, That's the bridge building that we're involved in. And and it really is, as much as I'm a math guy and love playing with the models, uh, choosing the words is just as important as as choosing the models in order to, to get people to buy it.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Well, as I said, um, it's it's an extraordinary conversation. And as far as I'm concerned, Pete, it's one that is going to continue. And um, I'm hoping we can stay in touch as your work progresses. Um, I'm going to wrap up from my side just by, um, again, just quoting some of your words from from the the HBO article where um, you talked about market participants demanding sunlight. So um, I think that's a, a really good insight for anyone listening, that their work is going to be increasingly visible and increasingly important, uh, literally at the highest levels of their company. So if anybody already isn't creating those relationships um, within their own businesses, I think now it's a, it's a, it's a perfect time to do it.
1: Uh, Pod, thank you so much for shining a lot of light on, on what we've been doing. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful uh, kind of vote of confidence. Uh, and, and I hope that if any listeners Uh, want to pick up on it we've already mentioned and you'll share a bunch of resources uh, and of course they should feel free to to reach out to me directly as well
0: wonderful okay well of course i'll make sure i link to you to your own profile so um yes i just want to say um you know from my side as i said it's been a phenomenal conversation and super exciting so professor peter fader thank you so much from let's talk loyalty This show is sponsored by The Wise Marketeer, the world's most popular source of loyalty marketing news, insights and research. The Wise Marketeer also offers loyalty marketing training both online and in workshops around the world through its Loyalty Academy, which has already certified over 150 executives in 18 countries as certified loyalty marketing professionals. For more information, check out www.thewisemarketeer.com and www.loyaltyacademy.org. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Loyalty. If you'd like me to send you the latest show each week, simply sign up for the show newsletter on letstalkloyalty.com and I'll send you the latest episode to your inbox every Thursday. Or just head to your favorite podcast platform. Find Let's Talk Loyalty and subscribe. Of course, I'd love your feedback and reviews. And thanks again for supporting the show.